Recording in progress. Perfect. I like that lady. She's very, uh, very professional. She's very much about the law and that uh, everyone is aware of what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's thorough. I like that. Very. Uh, she's like the current temperature outside. You shut up, Helen. I'm trying to do an interview here. She's like, okay, well, shouldn't have hired me as an intern. So, <laughs> just someone to your left there. I can't see who just. <laughs> it just keeps saying the obvious. <laughs> it's Thursday. Yes, Helen. We. Jesus. Goddamn, Helen. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode. I'm very excited today. We have got a, uh, a stand up comedian, an actor, a cast member from this hour has 22 minutes and all around just a fantastic human being, I would say. Mr. Trent McClellan, everybody. Yeah, I can hear that applause from people's devices all over the world. I can hear it. Absolutely. They're going nuts right now. Yeah. Kind of How crazy. are you, man? I'm good, man. I'm really good. I um, feel like summer's finally arriving and that uh, hopefully this ship is turning around that we've been on this roller coaster of the last 15 months. So uh, yeah. I, uh, I am quite optimistic, as optimistic as I've been in the last year and a half. So uh, I'm good. How about you? Yeah, I'm good, man. I'm, I'm same as you, you know, just uh, waiting things out and, and seeing, you know, when we can get back to uh, back on the road and back to, you know, normal or whatever. I don't know. I hate the term new normal, but you know what I mean? The I know, whatever it's going to be. Um, yeah. What what uh, what kinds of things were you doing over this past year? Like, obviously, you're a guy that was always on the road. Uh, did you switch over to the Zoom shows? Have you avoided that? What's what's your feeling there? Well, when the world paused, I was three shows into a big Canadian tour. I had like 23 dates set up across the country after we wrapped 22 minutes and uh, started in New Brunswick and I'd gone back to Newfoundland. I was going to work my way across. So three shows in, we had to shut it down. So I was like, oh, wow, yeah. then left. Yeah, which kind of sucked. I mean, you pumped all this money into marketing and all this stuff and it's it's all for not. But um, then I went back to Calgary and I remember just sitting there with like, all right, I'm just going to enjoy the break. The season's wrapped. So like, you know, some downtime, just enjoy that. But I mean, I went back to a city that was completely shut down, like the, like literally nothing was open. Like I think we often forget about what the original lockdown was like, you know, in the oh, rest yeah. of the country where we're like, no, no, no one else exists. Nothing's open. You're just literally the grocery stores. That was it. Yeah. And I remember going like, my God, is this the rest of our lives? What's going to happen? And I went to a bit of a panic mode <laughs> for a bit. And then uh, at one point I got out a bunch of flip chart paper and I was like, man, I'm going to use this pause to kind of start looking at my life and career and put it all under a microscope and start asking myself questions like, do I want to do this thing? And if I am going to do this thing, how do I want to do it? And, you know, I just use the slowing down to my advantage. And it was, it was amazingly helpful. Like it was, cause I don't think I would have done it otherwise, if you know what I mean, to sit yeah. down and actually say, you're not going to the next show. You don't have to worry about promoting the next show. You don't have to worry about touring and all the other stuff. You can just stop and 
take, you know, kind of inventory of your life. And so that's what I did at that time. So I haven't done many Zoom shows, to be honest. I'm just not that guy. I'm like, I can't. If they, I don't know if they're, I just can't. I just can't put myself. No. No, I couldn't they do it. didn't excite you to <laughs> talk to a computer screen while people are muted and often don't even have a camera on? Really? Yeah, and, and sometimes I, I hosted some events like where it was yeah. like I'm hosting a thing and I got to host David Suzuki's 85th birthday party, which is kind of cool. You know, really? Like, yeah, yeah. It was insane. Um, it was really cool. But I noticed even these events like you're, you can see people on the screen sometimes and I hosted some other events. But like sometimes, you know, you'll see someone in the upper right hand corner just get up and leave. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, is that, is he going to the bathroom or is he going to get cake? Like, I, I don't, all I know is if I'm doing stand up on stage and someone just gets up and goes, I'm like, okay, that was clearly something I said. Like, I don't know. But they're like, they might have to go get the door. Maybe a pizza arrived. I have no idea. So I was like, yeah, I can't do stand up, I don't think, uh, on the Zoom stuff. So, uh, that was it. We had a full season with 22, so that was busy. Tons of COVID protocol and stuff, obviously, but we were grateful to get a season in when a lot of things weren't shooting, so that was awesome. And then uh, that's it. Been sitting around waiting for waiting for more news, basically. And the tour that you were on when everything uh, when everything started, you mentioned that was going right across right across Canada. Yeah, yeah. And was that a theater tour? Yeah, it was a couple of clubs and mostly theaters. Yeah. So it was like, you know, you're putting deposits down on, you know, all these venues and like, you know, the marketing into it and social media marketing. And I mean, like building it up for months and then all of a sudden just like, wham, you know, like it's not happening. And, you know, I didn't get into that situation where I was just postponing dates. I was like, nah, I got a feeling this could be sticking around a while. Let's not, um, let's not move it two months. I think that'll yeah. be another email I got to send out later. <laughs> so I was like, just, just go pull the plug and then uh, we'll figure something out. That was out a couple of years down the road, but uh, yeah, no, it was, it was kind of, it was weird. I mean, I'm sure you would have went through the same thing where you go like, my God, is that profession done? Like, am I, does this thing not exist anymore? It was a very scary moment, I recall. Yeah. Well, at first I bought the, this will be two weeks and everything will be fine. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I was yeah. one of those. Idiots. Give it 14 days. Give it 14 yeah. days. I'll be fine. Like a 14 good... days. All the people that have it, they won't have it anymore. It's great. We'll shut everything down. You'll be yeah. fine. It'll and be I was I was like, oh, great. I, I can take a two week vacation. This will be fantastic. And, yeah, exactly. And then we'll be right uh, right back. <laughs> yeah, it'll be. Yeah. What is, what's my my show is when it's March 15th. Move it two weeks. Yeah. yeah just put it to the 30th. I'm sure it'll be fine. We'll swing in. Tickets will be honored from that earlier date. Just swing in. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I think you're right. It's like, because it's become so normal now, like we forget like how insane it was when it first happened. Like, I think that's Crazy. the thing I've been thinking about more now is like, do you remember the first few months of how, how insanely contagious we thought it was? And like, we were scrubbing everything. Your hands were cracked from like washing the backs of them. I'm like, what, my <laughs> doctor? What am I doing? <laughs> surgery? What's going on? Like just we were, we were yeah. all gone mad, and it was like that the level of anxiety that that created in everybody and fear and and uh, obviously you know it's still something very serious and we're all still washing our hands. But you know what I mean? Like those early months, it was like everything was brand new and and you, everyone was terrified all, all the time. Like you went to bed terrified, you woke up terrified, you had no certainty of income anymore. Um, so it was it was a crazy crazy time. It was wild. And I was I came back from the US right uh, at the end of March, right after the uh, right after the original two weeks, because I waited there thinking, we'll just go back. And, you know, yeah. but we came back 
And I mean, it was serious at the border. Where are you going? Where are you staying? Uh, yeah. There'll be a cop going to come and make sure you're there. If you yeah. order food, you wipe that down. You wash your hands like it was. I remember just I was in a hotel room for two weeks waiting out the original quarantine. Wow. And, uh, you know, food delivery and the guy wouldn't come to the door and he met, <laughs> made me meet him out in the parking lot. And I'm like, I don't even know if I can meet you out there. I, I don't even know if I'm allowed to go out there right yeah. now. Can you slingshot those burgers up to yeah. 308? I'll just open the window, you can fire it up. And you're right too about the like restrictions and how tight it got. It was like everyone had a militant mother who was suddenly just like, wash your hands, make sure you wash the groceries when you come home, shut the door, wipe the counter down. You're like, I gotta move out. I can't live here with you. This is, but that's what it became for everybody. It was just like, you're, you know, this hyper, hyper militaristic mom who was just on your back 24 seven about, you know, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. and. And uh, yeah, man, it was it was crazy times those first few months. Yeah, it was insane, man. Um, but I, I want to take it back, you know, to uh, to your beginning. You you are originally from Newfoundland, right? Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. Yeah, born and raised. I love it. I I just went there for the first time uh, two years ago. Nice. And, like to Newfoundland just as a whole, and then Cornerbrook as well. All right. And, on. Yeah, it was amazing. I I absolutely love it out there. But I imagine uh, tough place to start doing comedy um is that where you started or did you have to move in order to start yeah no i didn't start stand-up until i moved to calgary in 2003 because at the time in newfoundland there were no comedy venues at all but there wasn't a comedy club there were occasionally shows would come through and i remember one of the first live comedy shows i ever saw was Mike Bullard and Shama Junder playing like at the Delta Hotel, like a ballroom at the Delta Hotel. And there was another act on the show and I cannot for the life of me remember who it was, but I was just blown away. I was like, I was, just, I was a server at the time at a restaurant and I was just like, oh my God, this, this is amazing. I've seen stand-up done on television, but when you're in the room, this is it's like, it's like a superpower. I was just, I was blown away by just the feeling of it. You know, we yeah. all left energized. We're all in a great mood. We all went out. Um, so yeah, up th that was the only time I'd ever seen a live stand-up show and there was not really much coming through my town in Cornerbrook. And then I moved to St. John's on the East coast, the capital city, and that place didn't really have any live comedy venues either. You know? So I had friends tell me, man, you should do stand-up. You should do stand-up. But I was like, that's great. But like, where would I do it? How would I learn it? Like, and I've told people this before to me, stand-up for the most part, it was just something on my television. It was almost like I was looking at something that was on the moon. Like that's how, that's how little access I would have had to right. talking to a comedian or asking them questions because it just didn't exist. So as I was getting ready to go to Calgary, the economy in Newfoundland was pretty bad at the time and I didn't have a job after a while. I thought I'll go to, I'll go to Calgary, but I knew Calgary had a comedy scene. So I was like Googling, okay, well, how would you get on stage or how would you at least try it? And I found an amateur night at, at a Yucks or whatever. And, and uh, eventually, after a bunch of months, got the courage to walk on stage at an amateur night. And luckily, it went well. And I was like, that was it. I was hooked. But uh, yeah, it took me a long time to find just a community of, you know, comedians that actually like, oh, this is a place where you do it. And we can all hang out and help each other with jokes and all that. All that happened in Calgary. What did you originally go to Calgary for? Well, what I wanted to do at first was... Uh, I, I was dating this girl. She was living in California. She was from Newfoundland as well, but she was living in California. And we were like, we're doing long distance. We're like, oh, this isn't working. Why don't we both move to Calgary? Because it's like, 
you know, the economy's booming. We can both find jobs, da, da, da. So that's what I did. So I moved, but I thought I'd already had a job for years working with kids like boys and girls clubs and community center type work and after school programming, summer day camps. So that's what I, when I moved to Calgary, that's the first thing I tried to do was try and like find a job working with kids. And so I found that. And once I got some steady income, I was like, okay, I'm going to try this stand up thing. I'm going to go to an amateur night and write down some ideas and start seeing if I can find out um, how to at least get on stage for the first time and see if I can do this, you know? So, but that was the original plan. Yeah. Just go and see what happens. Do you remember that first show? I do. Yeah, I do. I remember, and I believe this, man, I'm sure you're probably the same for you, but like that first time you go on stage and you're, or before you go on stage, when you're waiting in the wings and they're about to introduce you. And I remember just being, it was the most terrified I ever was in my life. I was just like, oh my God, like this is just, it'll just be me out there. And I don't know these people. You know, like it all hits you in that moment. Oh, and yeah. I remember my knees were literally just shaking. Like I, I'm sure the audience could have heard them knocking. Like they were just like, boom, boom. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember thinking to myself, if I can just walk these 20 feet and get to that mic stand, that's all I got to do. Just get, move your feet left, right, left, right. You've walked a million times in your life. Just keep walking and grab that mic and have words come out of your mouth. And, uh, and luckily I did it and, and was able to get some laughs that first time. But my God, I was yeah t- absolutely terrified. Absolutely terrified. And I still feel that, by the way, when I see another comedian go on stage and I know it's their first time, I still feel that in my stomach for them. Absolutely. I, mm-hmm. I have the exact same thing, man. I'm always so, I feel like a, like a, their father. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, You're going like, to do great. Look at me. Yeah. Look at me. You're loved regardless of what happens out there. Do you understand? You're loved regardless. Now get out there. You know, I'm going to buy you ice cream when you're done. Hey, thanks, dad. Because you know, you remember that feeling of, remember how bright the lights were and hearing your voice amplified for the first time and all these strangers, whoops, all these strangers just sitting there with their arms folded, kind of just sizing you up, you know, like you are being measured and you are alone in that moment. Like there is nowhere to hide. You're not in a band where you can just, okay, guitar solo. And this guy takes it for a bit. It's just you (laughs) hanging out there and you got to try and figure it out. So I, I still feel it every time I see someone for the first time. I still feel that in the pit of my stomach for them. That would be nice to have somebody where you're just like, okay, hey, this guy's going to take a, a joke solo here. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm going to take well, a break. Well, on my podcast, I've talked to a bunch of musicians and they often say that. They go like, but you comedians, it's like, it's insane that you just go out there and like, it's all on you. Like there is no backing band. Cause they say like, once you're in a band, there's a bit of a machine there at least, you know what I mean? Like the machine yeah. is there, drummer, uh, you know, uh, guitar players like there's a bit of a thing and it's got its own kind of inertia but when you're a comedian you're having a good day bad day flu uh not feeling it feeling great doesn't matter it's still just on you at 8 p.m and nobody cares in that audience nobody cares that you're not having a great day or you're not feeling particularly funny today nobody cares <laughs> it's just like i paid my money make me laugh and that's it so you got to dig down and find it somehow do you remember the first time you had a real, like, bomb, hard? Oh, yeah, and it wasn't long. My second show, I absolutely <laughs> ate it. You know what I did? I don't know if you relate to this. I did that thing where you go on stage the first time with mm. five to seven minutes, and it worked, luckily. Like, just not because I'm a genius, just because it, whatever that set was worked for me that night. 
Yeah. So I, I, I think this, then I go, well, clearly, everything I think of is hilarious. I think that seven minutes is ready. So let me have a new seven minutes that I will take out to my second time on stage. Oh, a new seven. Brand new seven, because I know that that seven already works. I used it once. It's already fine. So I go to a brand new seven for a competition. It was like the... We had a thing called Calgary Comedy Idol or something, which was like a based on, you know, American Idol, where you had three judges who had microphones, too, and they're ripping you a new one after your set. So I went, OK, I'm ready. I, I've already got one set. I'll put that over there. Dude went up and just I mean, it was <laughs> flatline. And again, this is my first time bombing. Right. So I don't know. <laughs> You're just like, yeah. oh, this was this was in my, I remember my head going. Oh, this is why I never, I thought I should never do it. This is why I thought I should never try stand up because I was terrified something like this would happen. And it's happening on my second time. And I was, I thought I was done after that. I thought like, I'm never coming back to this. That's, that was, I don't want that feeling ever again. <laughs> what so made you go back? I, I mean, like for, I, I think I would, I think I understand the, what it is, but like for the average person who, <laughs> would experience something like that and as you said never wants to experience that <laughs> feeling again what what made you decide to go for the third time well i guess i realized that like okay i did two sets one went really well one went terrible so it's like well which which one are you going to let dictate your future the one that you suffered and ate it is that the one that's going to determine that you no longer do this or you can just choose to remember the one where you did really well and then learn lessons from that and try to be better at it you know and but I, but i didn't get back on stage for months like it wasn't like i was like i dusted myself off after two weeks and went up like i was scarred by it like it, it was like it was like getting beat up after school like you're like hey well i'm not gonna go down that road anymore that's where i got beat up that time after school so i'm gonna take a new route <laughs> home from school <laughs> yeah like so i was taking a new route for about four months i was like yeah no nah, i'm not gonna be going over there and then eventually and like I, beat up like naked in front of the whole school by a yeah. person way smaller than you yeah and you ended up with a nickname as a result of it and all that yeah, yeah. so all the Horrifying. all the emotional damage and turmoil that comes with it all that piled into it Horrible. and then uh yeah it, and so then i was like hey well i'm gonna have to at least get on stage the third time to see like what the tiebreaker is here like do i have what it takes do i not but I think early I had a real passion for it too. Like I, I could not absorb enough information, whether it was books or a headliner doing a workshop and talking to you about writing jokes or the business. I just couldn't take it in quick enough. And I don't recall anything else in my life where I had that level of uh, interest, if that makes any sense, where I was just so engaged in everything to do with it. I was like, more, yeah. more, more. And I'm like, that didn't go away, even though I still had the scars from that, from that second set. But the the real interest in it and passion to learn more about it, that didn't go away. So I think I had to eventually follow that, you know, back to the stage for a third time. How many, how many people do you think there are in the world that could have been absolutely amazing comedians, but because of that bomb, they went the other way instead of looking at it. Like I've done this twice. One was good. One was bad. Just yeah. only looked at the bad one and said, I never want to feel that again and gave up. Oh, I would say so many. I mean, I saw folks come through amateur nights, you know, who went up on stage and it didn't go well. And they never, we never saw them ever again, but they never yeah. returned to a stand-up stage because I think you're right. Cause you build it up so much as a fear anyway. Yeah. 
So then when you're up there and you know what it's like, when you're up there and it's not going well, you don't have the experience to know how to fix it or correct it. It's like having a car, but you've never owned a car before. So when it breaks down, you don't even know what to look or check or what to, what can you adjust? So when you're up there the first time and you're bombing, you don't know what to adjust. You don't know how to fix it. You don't know how to turn this car around. And it, yeah. your worst fears are coming true in that moment. So a yeah. lot of people I think are like, yeah, I never ever want to experience that again. But I think there's something to be said for the, that adage of you either get bitter or you get better. And you could either walk away going, yeah, I tried that once, it was terrible, I'll never do that again. Or you can go, no, there's data in there. There's information from that bombing. Like, why did I try a brand new set after only doing it another set once? Um, was I talking too fast? Did they not understand the premise? Was that joke too wordy? Can I rearrange the jokes in a certain order that work better and segue better? Can I write better punchlines? There's a million things you can adjust to improve on that one set even, you know? So, um, but I don't, I I think you're right. Not enough people get someone to grab them after the bomb and say, hey, you got some potential. If you want, I can suggest some things or offer you some things. So they just go off into the night quietly and you never ever see them again. But I would say, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people never ever walk back on stage after that. Do you remember the first time somebody gave you money to, to tell jokes. Do you remember that feeling? <laughs> oh, dude, it was incredible. And you know what's ironic? I bombed on that one, too. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know if you remember the late, great Jocko Alston. Do you remember Jocko yeah. Alston? Yeah, yeah. So Jocko was in Calgary on a Western run, and they needed someone to open for him in Fairview, Alberta, which was like, man, it must have been like 10 hours north of Calgary, like middle of winter. And I'm working at Boys and Girls Club at the time, and I get a call from the booker at my job. And she goes, um, hey, Trent, um, just want to let you know we have an opening spot. We'd like to send you on the road to open. I'm like, are you serious? Like, I'm going to go. You want me to go on the road? You believe in me enough to go on the road? Oh, my God. And uh, it's like, yeah, it's Fairview, Alberta. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's a 12-hour drive, uh, roughly, with gas and meals. Uh, it pays $50. So you'll be going with Jocko Alston. You'll be opening for Jocko. And I had met Jocko before once just at the club, whatever. He was a really nice guy. So I was like, oh, that'd be cool, right? So we go up there and, dude, it was like four guys in the bar playing VLTs who didn't know there was a show. They were just there, like, going. And that was it. There was only people there besides the staff. And one of the staff, as soon as we walk in, the bartender lady comes around the back through the back of the bar. She goes, you guys the comedians? We're like, yeah. She goes, Oh, well, welcome to the air. This place, we're voted the worst show in Canada. Oh, nice. And dude, it was like the the accommodations were like some terrible motel with shag carpet where the pickup trucks from the oil and gas industry would just like idle all night and morning. So the the exhaust was coming in under your door, like your motel room door. You're just like, we're going to die in our sleep. Like, well, this F-150 is out here. So anyway, dude, it was just, and I, they had to convince the four guys on the VLTs to, to shut them off and turn around and face us because that was the only audience we had. So the show was being pushed a half an hour, another half an hour, another half an hour. Because they're like, well, maybe somebody will show up besides these four guys who don't know there's a show. No one shows up. It's just those four guys. So now That's these four guys. That's always the way at the bad exactly. shows. No, no, yeah. no. People are coming. Just give it. Oh a- yeah. What time is it? What is it? Quarter to. It's it's quarter to eleven. Yeah. No. Let's yeah. just give it another half an hour. I'm sure some folks are. They're just showering. They're really yeah. excited for the show. <laughs> they they knew it started at eight, but they're just they're still 
finishing their wings over at the so yeah. um so these four guys now have been talked to by the manager into watching the show and they're pissed because they didn't they didn't oh, come yeah. there to watch no dumb comedy show they came to lose their paycheck in this vlt machine and we're rooting it for them so now they're just their arms folded dude i went up there and i mean i, I probably had 25 minutes if i was lucky if it was going well i had 25 minutes yeah i, I think i walked into my closer at about the 11 minute mark like all right so anyway nothing and it was just, I, I started pulling out premises I'd never tried before. And I like, just like I stuff I'd written half-assed, like werewolves, huh? You guys <laughs> think, are they more wolf or? <clears throat> Jocko's just over there like, like, he's doing that thing, you know, where like veteran headliners are like, just, just get off. Like I'll, I'll fix, I'll fill the time. Like you, I, you don't need to stay up there and just be taking bullets to the face. So I get off. And of course he gets out there. He starts talking to those four guys. He kind of brings them into the show. What do you do for a little, and next you know, it turns out to be a little bit of a show and there's laughs. I remember going like, Oh man. So that was the first paid gig I ever got. Oh, wow. I've, uh, I've done that, that exact gig, not, not there, but that type so many so many times <laughs> like, like i can i can feel my my I, my heart just started to like beat a little faster as you're telling it just because i'm reliving and i've been on both sides i've been the guy who has to close that out and do like longer and i've been the guy who's reached that 11 that that pivotal 11 minute mark where you're like oh okay. I, I well, that's this. that's just i'm supposed to do 25 minutes and i'm already looking down to 11 do i start this on time <laughs> just in your head all this dialogue is going on <laughs> you're just trying to and the thing and someone said this to me once and i think it's so true like when you when i walked in that room when you would you've done the same i'm sure you walk into these rooms you know it's going to be terrible like oh, your yeah. your instincts, your experience tells you like this is going to be a dog fight. But the difference between comedians and normal people is a normal person would walk in there and go, yeah, this is going to be terrible. I'm not doing this. Whereas we walk in and go, this is going to be terrible. Where's the stage? And then yep. we just our feet just walk us up this thing. Normal human beings do not do that. Oh, look, that yeah. building's on fire. I will walk into that building and just just for a look around to see what happens. Like no one else does that in the world, only comedians. It's amazing. Oh, hey, what's up guys? I hope you're enjoying this episode of Lease and Learned. Thank you for uh, being here. Thanks for watching the show. I'm just having a quick coffee break with Rampage Coffee, my favorite coffee in the world. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of this company, but they're doing huge things. It's a husband and wife owned company, Canadian owned, Canadian made baby owned by a husband and a wife together. They work together every day. Could you do that with your husband or your wife? A lot of you are shaking your head right now. You can't believe it. These people work together day in, day out. Delicious specialty coffee roasted fresh and delivered right to your doorstep. You can become a Rampage Coffee member and subscribe to get coffee delivered to you as often as you want at 
at a discounted price. You can also earn rage points and use them to buy coffee and merchandise like this hat, this t-shirt here, which is, I love it. It's my new favorite shirt and a coffee mug with a gun on it. How many coffee mugs do you have that have a gun on the side? I bet the answer is zero, because that was my answer before I got this. They've got a high caffeine blend that'll kick your ass in gear. They got medium, dark, and espresso blends. Espresso, I always say espresso, but it's espresso. You can try all four of the blends in the sampler bundle. I have tried it. I recommend it and I recommend you get some. Head on over to their website right now. Get yourself some coffee right to your doorstep and a huge thank you to Rampage Coffee for sponsoring this episode of Lease and Learned. This episode of Lease and Learned is sponsored by the Big Fish Steak and Lounge in Sarnia, Ontario. One of my personal favorite restaurants in, in the world. I was gonna say in the country, but no, in the world. They have some of the greatest food I have ever had. Every single time I eat there, I think to myself, it will never get better than what I have just eaten. And the next time I go back, they top it once again. It's that good. If you live in the Sarnia area, make sure you book your reservation for lunch or dinner, or hell, book your reservation for both right now. Do it tonight. What are you gonna cook for dinner tonight probably something awful don't do that head on over to the big fish steak and lounge if you don't live in sarnia i suggest you make a trip down just for the food or if you're going to be in the area stop in and have one of the greatest meals you will ever have do you remember the the time where you reached the point where it was like okay i'm not i'm not an opener anymore. I feel comfortable now to start headlining shows. Yeah, I remember at the time, the booker at Yucks in Western Canada, I asked to have a meeting with her. And to be fair, when I first started doing stand up, I had a lot of respect for headliners because I used to think, my God, that's a marathon up there. You know, like yeah. doing 45 or an hour. I, like I said, I was lucky if I had 20, 25 minutes. So when I saw these headliners do their full 45 or an hour, I was like, my God, that's I don't know if I'll ever get there, but over time, over a few years, you know, you're starting to build time, build time. And I felt like, man, I'm there. I'm at 45 to an hour. It seems to work consistently. So I thought I'm going to ask to have coffee or a meeting with them and say, yeah, I think I'm ready. Like, I think I'm ready to, to be able to headline some stuff. And so she said, you know what? I think you are too. And we appreciate the way you went about it. And um, so that was it. They started sending me off to different places, like, you know, small towns, a few other major cities in Western Canada. And then, yeah, I started playing the clubs and stuff, but it was, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's hard because you don't want to sound like you're an egomaniac, but you also think like, no, I think I'm ready. So it's, as they always say, you, you probably think you're ready before you actually are ready. And so right. I was very careful of that. And I thought like, no, I, I want to make sure I'm going to go over, over the date that I think I'm actually ready and wait and wait and wait. And eventually I was like, no, I think I'm, I'm good to go. I got, cru I got killed with that. <clears throat> I was one of those people that thought, thought I was good to go. And uh, I ended up in Reading, Pennsylvania. And the guy that opened just absolutely destroyed. And it was, oh. it was uncomfortable to say the least. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was one of those nights where you, where the people can't even say anything to you as they're leaving. They can't yeah. even look you in the eye. Yeah. You know? 
They just looked out their shoes, like just, yeah. uh, what's that? What is that? Oak on the floor? That's, <laughs> as they walk up. <clears throat> but you're right, though, because you, you know what we wouldn't have thought of, or a lot of people don't think about? When you're opening the show, there's nothing ahead of you, right? So you're, you're just the first comedian of the night, or there might have been an MC that did a little bit of work. But for the most part, like, you're the first main, like, main actor seeing of the night, like, you know, an yeah. extended set. So you don't have to follow much, but when you're headlining, if you got legit comedians on ahead of you, like you, this thing has been climbing for the last 45 minutes or whatever, and now it's your turn. So you realize like, oh shit, like there's already groundwork laid and I got to come in up here as opposed to, I used to just come here and build slowly and eventually I get to, but like, it's very different as a headliner to kind of close that show and keep it going upwards. So I think you're right. A lot of people, when you're trying to make that transition, you got to keep that in mind. Like you're you're following season comics, so you you got to be able to bring it at the end of the show. And I've found a lot of times too that uh, comedians will think that headlining is just like I can I can talk for forty five minutes or <laughs> I, I can yeah. do this for an hour, yeah. and not realizing like yeah, but you're going on right at the end. You've already had the you know you've already had a sh you know a portion of the show in front of you, um, and if you're if you can't top the person that went right before you it could be a very difficult time and ultimately you might talk faster which means you know that's now fine. you're at 35 now you're at you know 30. yep and i think that's a that, that's a very difficult thing to navigate uh in the early early beginning of becoming a headliner you know what i've seen it too i've seen it when you have people who are big names who are comedians, but they're also, you know, on a sitcom or they do other work outside of that. And so they end up doing this show, you know, they're doing a TV show or whatever it is, and then they get stand-up dates, but they haven't been doing stand-up a lot over the last while because they're doing this other project. And so they get booked to do these shows and they have local openers that go on, but these local openers are real comics. Like they, and this is a big shot for them because they're on this big show and they want to do really well. So they bring their A game and they come out and crush and this person who's a bigger name and is a comic and an actor and all that stuff, they, their chops have not been working over the last little while. And now yeah. they're struggling because they have not been in the game for a bit, right? And it goes away. If you don't keep doing it and you don't keep, you know, working this thing because it's a muscle, it will atrophy if you don't use it. You, I've seen that happen a bunch of times where you're like, that's a he's a really great comic, but you can tell he's not been on stage in six months. And so he's just up there trying to figure this out. But he had to follow two real comedians who were like came out swinging out of the gate. And uh, yeah, it's it's different when you're closing a show. It's a very different mentality, different mindset. And uh, you're right. It's not just about being able to cover the time. It's like, yeah, I know you can, but can you finish this thing off with a bang? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, do you remember the first, uh, what was your sort of first break? Was it like a, a where you where you thought, oh, this is this is going to be my full time gig? Was it like a festival, a TV appearance? <clears throat> um, I kind of got it's funny. I got I was starting to get some shots like opening for big names and stuff. And but I still had the day job. And then as in most decisions in life, sometimes you're just backed into a corner and you have to make a choice. And I got offered a tour in Newfoundland. So I'm still working in Calgary, full-time job. So I should back up a little bit. Basically my weeks look like this. I'd work at Boys and Girls Club from Monday to Friday. 
doing my thing, sometimes evenings, sometimes days, whatever. It was a lot of hours. And on the Friday, I would get in the car and I'd drive to God knows where, Western Canada, and I would do a show. <laughs> yeah. And then the next night I'd drive from there to another place in Western Canada, do a show, drive back on Sunday, sleep, get up on Monday morning, go to work at Boys and Girls Club. That was my life for three years. <clears throat> so in the third year, I get offered this tour in Newfoundland, which was gonna be about a week to 10 days. But I don't have enough vacation time to take off from my day job to go do this tour. So I talked to my boss and she's like, Trent, like, we know you love this and we believe you can do stand up full time, but we can't give you the time off to go do this thing because it's it's a really important time for us and we need you here. Da, da, da. So I had a choice to make. I was like, well, when am I going to do it then? Like, when am I going to leave this and go do stand up full time if I don't do it now? And so I decided to put in my notice and resigned and went off to do this tour, not thinking that I had no work after that tour was done. <laughs> like I did that tour and I was like, all right, well, yeah. So, and this was summer, dude. So I go to talk to my agent at the time and I go, all right, guess what I did? Guess what your boy did? Walked in my day job, told him it's over. I'm done. I want to go all in on stand up. This is it. Whatever you guys got, you put me on the road. I can do extended stuff. I can go, whatever. What do you got? They go, we don't have anything. It's it's summer. Who quits their day job at the beginning of summer? Did you hear what he did? Why would you quit your day job? Wait, there's no comedy in the summer. No one does any. You'd wait till September to quit your September. We've got gigs. Corporates are coming. Why would you? And I was like, oh, my God. I've made a terrible mistake. Like, like I gave up, like, RSPs and stuff, you know what I mean? Like a corporate job, not not like corporate, yeah. but like it was like, you know, the most money I'd ever made in a job job. I was like, oh my God, I made a terrible mistake. I made a terrible mistake. And then it was a rough summer, dude. Like it was like looking in old winter jackets to see if you left 20 bucks in it. You know, remember those oh, days? Yeah. You're like going like, winter jacket, is there anything? Nope, just some Trident. <laughs> All right. Like just hoping to find a $20, $20 bill. And then uh, once the fall came around, gigs started to slowly roll in. But man, it was a rough summer. Like it was like, wow, is this what being an artist or starving artist is? Because if this is it, this is, I don't know if I can do this, but it slowly started to turn around that fall. Was it just just you? Were you married or anything at that no, time? No, no. I had, you know, I had a girlfriend at the time when I first started, then we split up and then I, um, met another girl so she was kind of supportive of like when I was trying to make that transition into it so you know you know you realize too like as a comedian like we're not easy to be with right like it's like you know most people are married or with someone who's like a nine to five person someone they see every day for us it's like you know I remember I used to go on the road for a month and a half you know like I'd go for six weeks straight on the road like that you know that's not for everybody. Like not everyone can sign on for that and go like, all right, go follow your dreams. Enjoy. Like, you know, <laughs> Oh, by the way, the squirrel joke worked. Oh, that's great, honey. Fantastic. You know? So it was just, you realize like, yeah, this, uh, this comes with a whole lot of moving parts here. So, um, but the good thing for me, and I look back on it, like I had friends of mine who, for whatever reason, they had different people in their life trying to talk them how to stand up. Like, Oh, it's a lot of risk and there's no money and no job security. I never, ever, ever had anyone in my life who tried to talk me out of it. Like no one from my family, like, you know, like no one that I was dating, none of my friends. It was like, no one ever was like, Hey, you shouldn't do this. Everyone was like, no, this is your thing. Yeah. It's going to be rough times, but like, this is, this is what you're doing. Like everyone was so supportive. And I realize now 
how lucky I was to have that because a lot of people don't have that. They have someone who's chirping in their ear saying, you know, like, well, I told you, you should have went back to school or whatever. Like I had a university degree, um, so I'd already done that. But I was like, no, I, everyone was supportive. So I'm, I'm grateful for that I had that. Yeah, that that is amazing. Like, because you're right, a lot of people don't have that or they have the complete opposite where everybody <laughs> tells them, stop doing this and quit or, yeah. you know, or, you know, some people, I guess it depends when you get into it too, because some people are already married. They already have a life that they're living, but yep. they feel this emptiness or they feel something missing and then they get into it. And now it's like, now you can't, you're not dating somebody saying, Oh, by the way, this is part of my life. And yeah. you know, this is how it is. Now you have to be like, listen, yeah. I'm going to change everything uh, yeah. that, that we knew here. It's going to be a lot different. Yeah. We're going to live in a closet. Are you fine with that? Because this, we're going to get rid of this. Or we're going to live in that shoe closet over there. So that's, I got, I got a dream. Um, so um, yeah, you're right, man. It's like, it's such a hard thing to transition into because it seems insane. It's yeah. insane to tell someone I've had this moment. I don't know if you had it where I've pulled up to a parking lot to do a show and it just, it hits me in that moment of like, Oh, I'm about, I just drove and I'm about to go in and go on stage in front of a bunch of strangers and attempt to say things that make them laugh. And then I'm, they're going to pay me money at the end of it. Like it's insane. It's yeah. insane when you think about that. Like that's insane as a concept. And then someone else is going to go, yeah, no, that's a thing you're going to do for a living. Oh, that's totally fine. Like it's, and the other thing I think too for comedians or anyone who's in the arts, I think, or even if you're an entrepreneur, you almost need certain um, milestones along the way to get any kind of validation from your friends and family. So if you get that comedy festival or if you get to open on that other big show, that's just enough for them to see like, okay, all right, Jeff's Jeff's doing Jeff's doing some stuff with it because I hadn't heard much in a while, and but he's doing that thing. You know what I mean? Like it's just enough of a carrot to let them think, okay, yeah, no, this dream is a reasonable, it's a yeah. reasonable thing. But if you go if you go radio silent with any of those bigger things for an extended period of time, people start going, so so Jeff, are you just gonna you're just gonna keep telling the jokes and stuff? Are you ever gonna? Settle down and just, you know what I mean? Like, they want to talk, talk sense to you. And you're like, no, I'm chasing the dream. Come on. So, yeah. Anytime someone lowers their voice like that to uh, ask you a yeah. question, you know, yeah. you know you're not doing something right. Yeah. You know, there's a little bit of condescension in there and some, some uh, heavy advice is coming your way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, what, what was the first um, TV exposure that you had? Was it a, a comedy festival set? Yeah, I think it would have been Halifax Comedy Festival. And uh, I had a massive case of imposter syndrome on the flight there. I'll never forget. I was flying from Calgary to Halifax. And I'm on the plane. And uh, I had my set list out, you know, looking at it, looking at the two sets I was going to do and just running it in my own mind, which I often think is hilarious because, like, if you're on a plane and you're sitting next to me, you don't know I'm a comedian. And I pull out this wrinkly piece of paper that just has a bunch of random words on it and if you look over at that you're like this guy i i want a new seat because yeah. i did't what's this what what yeah, is insane it's got a hit ham, list or something ham squirrels this is a shopping list what parallel parking it can't be shopping i mean you can't what are you buying parallel parking what she's pressing that button yeah i can't i can't he's 
got a weird list. Um, so, you know, so I'm going over this thing. And as I'm going over my set list, I start thinking about, like, oh, my God, like, some big names are going to be there in the Canadian comedy world, like Erwin Barker at the time and, and like, all these, like, big names that I really respected, Derek Edwards and whatever. And I was like, what am I doing? I'm not ready for this. I've only been doing stand-up this many years. And I started to really go into a spiral of, like, confidence draining out of me. And then once I got here, like the first set, I was kind of like shaky. Second set, I was better. But I remember that feeling. But it was so weird because I put all this pressure on myself because like they're paying for your flights. They're going to pay for your accommodations. They're going to like it was the first time I ever had that happen to me. So it was always like, really, I'm getting paid and they're paying for the flight. So I started putting all this extra pressure on myself to I got to I got to be amazing. I got to be like I just started getting out of my head kind of thing. And, uh, but that was, that was the first time I was on television, I think. And the other thing I did, I did a comedy now special, I think like three or four years in where for CTV and the comedy network, where it was like flying you to Toronto, putting you up for a bunch of nights and we're going to tape this TV. And I was like, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but you can get outside yourself, you know, and really start, you know, just overthinking it. And that's terrible for a comedian or an artist in general. I think it's just overthinking. And what about if this happens and what about it? It's just like, just... Just do what you do. Just do what you did to get here. <laughs> like, just do that. Don't sit around looking around the room like, oh, you know, like it's it does not help you. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. The um, the comedy now is I'm I'm curious what what was the process like to get that? Is that something you had to do like a live audition for? Did you submit a video? How was that? <clears throat> yeah, back then what they used to do is they would send somebody out to go around to all the major cities and they'd do a showcase at all the major cities, kind of like what Just For Last does. And so they'd do, they'd ask, you know, local bookers to put together a, a lineup of comics. And uh, yeah, I think I did it the first year, didn't get it the second year and um, didn't find out right away. I found out a few months later that they're like, yeah, we're going to ask you to do one. And and I did it. But it's just a weird thing about TV, man. That's the thing. Like, it's such a business and there's so many other moving parts to it. So I get selected. They fly me in. I do it. I had I had a great set, like, for my own stage where I was at that point. I was really happy with it and it went well. And then uh, I'm at a, a rap party at the end of the night and someone from the network in a tie, suit and tie, comes up to me and he goes, get ready for your life to change. And I remember going, what? He's like, yeah, it was a great set. Get ready for your life to change. And I was like, oh shit, my life's good. What? You guys hear my life? My life's gonna change, guys. This guy said. So I go back to Calgary thinking, I mean, this guy knows. He, that guy was in the business. That guy's, that guy's seen talent. He knows what he's talking about. Dude, <laughs> they didn't air my Comedy Now episode for three years. <laughs> years? Three years, they started producing another show. I think you can dance Canada or something like that. So they started shelving all these new comedy nouns they had done and they weren't airing them at all. So here I was sitting around like going, okay, well, this thing comes out, shit's about to get real. And meanwhile, I was like, no, it's uh, it's not gonna be seen by anyone for uh, quite a while. And so I was just wow. continuing just to do road gigs and playing bars and doing whatever. So it's just, one of those things like you know you tell new comedians like just just move on to the next thing like don't put too much emphasis in this one thing you got or you need this thing because you think it's going to change your life it's like it might it might not just move on to the next thing and enjoy the process and in the moment of what you're doing and then don't overthink it just do it and then move on to the next thing that was my first lesson in that when you when it did finally air did your life indeed change god no you're still doing 
the same gig, nothing changed. It's Canada. People are like, oh yeah, yeah, no, I think I saw you on the thing. Were you on just for central comedy? Or, like people don't, they just, it was like, oh, it was just a thing you did, you know? It was a great credit to put like for bios and things, but like life yeah. didn't change. It was a great little payday at the time. It was the most money I'd ever made, you know, in stand up for that little thing. But you look back on it now and you're like, no, it's not a lot of money for, it was basically your life's work at that time, you know, like, oh, here, right. here's everything I have. And they could get to air it in for infinity for the rest of your life. They get to air it. And you're like, yep, there you go. Here's this bit of money. You're like, oh, yeah, awesome. You know, my life's about to change. And uh, so, no, nothing changed. It was like, you know, I got some good footage out of it that I could chop up and use for other promo and stuff and, and stuff. But like in terms of career wise, like, no, nah, it didn't. It didn't elevate me to a household name by any means. And uh, at that uh, at that time, were you were you headlining clubs uh, like comedy clubs across Canada? <clears throat> yeah, well, I, I was headlining clubs out west, but the east was a different beast because people were like, "Well, I don't, I don't really, I haven't seen you yet. I haven't seen you live. So whatever you've done out west is kind of irrelevant." It's almost like going from Canada to the U.S. I found where it was like. <laughs> You know, there weren't as many independent gigs. You know, it was mostly just club run. And so if a club booker hadn't seen you or didn't necessarily trust that you were able to do something, then they were like, nah, I don't care that you headline out west or that you do corporate shows for an hour. I've never seen you live, so can't really do it. So I was still opening a lot of stuff out east, like in Ontario and those kind of places. And when I went back to Atlantic Canada, or Western Canada, I could headline. But when I went to Ontario, it seemed like I was like, oh, I gotta open still for certain people and whatever. So it was a, it's a long road. And that's why I tell comics now, like when you're starting out, man, like it never ends. Like there's always doors that slam. I don't care who you are. An example I always use is like, I'm sure Brad Pitt would love to play Macbeth, but people are like, Brad, I mean, we can't, I mean, you know, Brad, we love you. Brad, I think you're incredible. I'm just saying the studio's not gonna, they're not gonna go for Macbeth, you know what I mean? Like, the door's shut for everybody. So to think, to get upset because you can't get on the open mic on a Tuesday in your hometown and you're gonna lose your shit and write a social media post bashing that person who books it, it's like, this is a comedy career. That's gonna happen your entire life. No one owes you shit. So just work your ass off and keep asking and being polite and just doing the work you got to do to be a better comedian and the opportunities eventually will start to come. But like want, getting, expecting to get something just because you want it to me is like the biggest form of entitlement. It's like, yeah. oh, you, just because you want to play there, you think they should let you play there. It's like, oh, okay. Like that's not how it works. It's just, it's just not, you know? And yeah. so I, that was a lesson I learned very early that like what you've done already, nobody cares. What you think you're ready for, nobody cares. Did you ever have a situation when you were headlining out west and, and Atlantic Canada, but would go to Eastern Canada? Did you ever have a situation where they booked you to open, not realizing that you're a headliner everywhere else and the head like the headliner couldn't follow you? This story has only been told twice, maybe. Really? Uh, yes. <clears throat> so I got booked to do a run of club dates in Ontario, and I was supposed to just open. And the guy knew I was a headliner, or that I would said I was a headliner, but he's like, well, I haven't seen you live yet, and so I don't wanna, I don't wanna take a chance, I'm gonna have you open. So I said, okay. So I went there, and I, was, I did like, 
I just machine gunned all this the stuff that I knew worked so well. Like I was just like, because I'm going to take an hour and condense it now into like 25 minutes of just like, yeah, I what I think is my best shit. <clears throat> so by the second show, the club booker told the headliner, "We're going to reverse you guys." So he told the headliner, "You're now going to open, and Trent, you're going to close." And I mean, that was awkward because this guy was like, had been around a long time and he was like, what? He was like, yeah, you, you're, we're gonna switch you guys. You're gonna open and he's gonna close. But to his credit, he was so kind and gracious about it. Like he was not like shitty to me the rest of the week. He wasn't, he was just like, he goes, no man, like you're having great sets and I've been on stage in a while. So I'm a little bit rusty too. So it's like, yeah, no, you know, it's all good. Like he was so, he was so classy about it and professional about it. And, uh, and that's why I ended up headlining that club for the for years down the road was like because that's what happened that time. Um, so wow. and, I, and I don't say that to brag. I just say that to explain that you don't need a sense of entitlement walking around. You can just go do your job, and if you do your job well enough, you have to believe that eventually the opportunity will come. Now that's a pretty unique situation. Maybe traditionally it would have been like. Well, you're not going to headline this weekend, clearly, because we already have a book this way. But you know what? We now have seen what you can do, and we'll bring you back next year, and you'll headline. But uh, but being shitty or being, you know, blasting people on social media because you don't think, like, I just never understood that. I just never understood how that would then get you what you want either, by the way. Right. That someone would then go, oh, God, no, you said that. So let's, it's like, they don't have to book you. They don't have to book any of us. Like, it's... It's, it's totally subjective, you know, so. And you're far less likely to get it if you're, you know, bad-mouthing people yep. or bad-mouthing whoever's doing the booking and far less likely to get anything else you want in the future if other people see you do that. So it, Exactly. Yeah, that mindset has never made sense to me either. No, it's it's a sense of entitlement, and I don't know if it's coming from... And you know, obviously, I'm with the old men here now talking about when I was your age, I used to go to the club every weekend and hang out and wait for a spot. Um, but that's what I did. Like, I used to get to the club an hour and a half early and bug the booker and the manager, like, hey, man, are there any guest spots? And I knew if I didn't get there at least an hour before, <clears throat> there would already be six other comics who were already in there, who were already like, no, I already talked to Matt to see if I can get on tonight. Like, you knew if you showed up after, you know, Le like less than an hour before showtime like wasting your time because guys are already in that room or girls are already in that room looking for a guest spot so I don't know there's just a hunger there and there was there was no entitlement of like I, I should get this because whatever it's like I don't think that serves you very well I think I think it's far better to be understated and surprise people rather than blow your own horn about how great you are and then they cave eventually and it's like okay well now go ahead bring it you said you were amazing you said you were Go ahead. You've put pressure on yourself. Whereas if you're more understated, just go, okay, I respect that. That's fine. And you just wait. I think, I think good things come to you eventually. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And speaking of good things coming to you, uh, what was the process like to get this hour has 22 minutes? How did that come into your life? So I kind of came to 22 minutes, two different stints to, to write for the show. So they'd bring you in for a couple of weeks to try you out or whatever as a writer. <clears throat> so I did that two different times. And during both times, they also threw me on camera doing like streeters, talking to people on the street and doing little segments and stuff. And it's so weird because after my second time doing that, I think it was my second or third time doing it, when the season ended and the summer came along, I remember thinking to myself like, I think I might get an offer to come back. You know, but I thought as a writer, I thought like, okay, well, we're gonna ask you to come back. 
and I was doing a segment in my hometown, ironically, for uh, Amazing Race Canada. I was doing a comedy portion of the show because they were doing a comedy stand-up, excuse me, stand-up challenge for their uh, competitors or whatever. And I had to write a bunch of the jokes and and host this comedy show that they had as a challenge. And when I get there the day before, we're doing just blocking and a meeting about you know the show the next day. There's two fine arts students from the local college there, Grenfell College. And I'm just talking to them about, you know, I said, what do you guys want to do? And they're like, oh, you know, I want to get into entertainment. I want to get into movies. I want to get into whatever. And I said to them at the time, I said, I said, you know, one of the things you have to accept when you're in entertainment is that your life can change with a phone call or an email. Like you're just the life as you knew it was going this way. And then you get an email or phone call and life changes. And I said, you learn to get used to it. It's weird, but you learn to get used to it. 90 minutes later, my agent calls and goes, 22 minutes wants you to join their team. And I went, oh, okay, cool. Like, you mean like as a writer? They're like, no, no, they want you to be a cast member. And I was like, wow. Can you send that to me in an email? Because I couldn't, I couldn't process it. I couldn't, it was like, because I was already working on a set already. And I was like, I couldn't process what she was saying. And then she sent me the email with all the details. And I was like, what? And the fact that I was in my hometown when I got the email, it was just surreal like how life had kind of come full circle and all this stuff but it was just it was it was a really really cool moment to to find out you're joining you know such an iconic show and joining that team so yeah that's kind of how it went down and uh what was the what was the first day like i mean once once you know you have it and now you're a cast member what was that first day like uh going <clears throat> well it's, it's one of those things where you find out in like the spring or whatever I found out would have been like May maybe or something. And so then, you know, you're doing all these interviews, people want to talk to you and newspapers and television, all this stuff. And like, it's kind of just fun. Like you're like, yeah, it's great. It's awesome. But then September, you pack up all your shit and you fly to Halifax and you're like, oh yeah, like, this is real now. Like you, you're going to go to work. And I remember standing outside the big bay doors at the old studio. It's knocked down now and there's a new studio built, but they have these massive bay doors that go into the studio. I remember the first Monday night when we tape with the live audience, I remember going like, oh my God, like I've been this nervous since my first time on stage. Like, this is it. Like I'm about to go. I felt like an astronaut about to go to the moon. Like you're like, yeah, you're getting in that thing and we're going to the moon. Like, you know, like it hit me in that moment. Yeah. And I was like, oh shit. And then, uh, and then, yeah, but everyone was so great. All the crew were so friendly and helpful. All the cast were the same way. Like, so yeah, I was. It's one of those things where it's just a special moment that I don't think everyone gets to experience, you know. And I, I felt yeah. very grateful in that moment. What's the schedule like for for a show like that? Because you mentioned you have to go to Halifax. I assume you're there for like a few months at, yeah. at a time. Yeah, you're normally there for about six months. A week normally works like I'll start the day. I'll start the week on a Tuesday because that's. It'll make sense when I go through it. So Tuesday is normally a pitch day. So that's when we pitch all of our ideas. Um, our executive producer will say, hey, here's what's going on in the news, or here's some things I wouldn't mind taking some sketches on or ideas on if you guys have any. Um, and we'll all pitch some ideas that we're, we might be thinking about. And then Tuesday, you write sketches. So you can go home, you can stay at any office, you can do whatever you want. And then they have to be in the next morning by I think around 11 o'clock. And then they're all submitted to the executive producer. They then pick the best of from that from everyone's submissions. And we have a table read on Wednesday of all the submissions that he's chosen from what's been submitted. 
And then he's looking around to see what works. So we're gonna actually read the sketches through, play the characters that we're supposed to play, and he's noting what gets laughs at the table and what doesn't. And then he's gonna pick maybe nine sketches from those that have been read. And then literally, that's on Wednesday. Thursday, we're making the first sketch. So Wednesday, we have we, no one even knows what's gonna be, like what even has been written. The next day, right? You're making four of those sketches or three of those sketches. And wow. then you make, do the same thing again on the Friday. Weekends are normally off. You might have to do a little bit of writing or tweaking things. And then Monday is a live audience. So that's when we do all our desk jokes. We play back all the sketches that we've made from Thursday and Friday. And that normally taping is about, about an hour and 20, hour and a half. And then from that is pulled 22 minutes, 22 minutes of actual, um, show is pulled from that hour and a half and that's what people see on Tuesday night so by the time you watch the show on Tuesday night we've already started the next week's show we've already started writing stuff for the next week how did you find it transitioning from like writing for stand-up and then writing for sketch did you did you was that difficult yeah it's a different beast because it's such a you know, in stand-up, you can kind of, everything is done your way. You have complete autonomy in terms of how you're to deliver something. Um, obviously, you're not on a, on, a, on a network television show, so you can use any word you want. There's no, you know, you can't say that, you can't say that. Um, and with sketch, it's such a collective, right? Because you you write stuff with other characters in mind and how you un you see it unfolding. But then also, set design has to play a role. Costume has to play a role. Hair and makeup have to play a role. There's a director now. They're going to direct this sketch, and so they're going to want certain things. There's just the practicality of not being able to do certain things. Like if you're like, oh, we're going to have a car chase, and like it's going to go off a cliff. It's like, no, it's not, because we <laughs> only have two to three hours to make a sketch, so we're, we're not going to be like, we need to close down all of downtown Halifax, and we're going to light a building on fire. All right, guys. It's like, you know, funny story, actually. One of the first sketches I wrote, when I was writing on the show, it was a, um, it was a, uh, I don't know if it ever aired. I don't think it did. It was a Fort McMurray traffic reporter. So he was in a helicopter and it's just a guy in a helicopter, you know, with the aviators on and stuff. He's like, yeah, it's a good morning show. So yeah, it's a truck to truck traffic right now here. We've got a pickup truck stall in the way. And it's just like, everything's a pickup truck. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's just pickup trucks as far as the eye can see here right now. I got a pickup truck hit another pickup truck, which hit four other pickup trucks. I wouldn't take uh, that road if you're heading into work this morning. It's like, it's just whatever. So anyway, I show up like the next day. We're going to do it live, like in front of the audience. There's a live sketch. And uh, the day of on the Monday, they've built a helicopter. Like they have an actual cockpit of a helicopter built with like all, a bunch of gadgets and stuff and whatever. They have an actual record player on the roof. So they just have the motor of it so it can rotate. And they have got rotor blades made, extended from that so that it actually spins around and they're gonna green screen it on the back to make it look like I'm flying in the clouds above. And so one of the set designers goes, you the new guy? I go, yeah, he goes, really? First time? Helicopter? Couldn't have wrote something with a desk or just in a bedroom or something? We got lots of bedrooms. We... Helicopter, yeah, dude. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I just thought we could just use our imaginations and just make up stuff. And he's like, yeah, helicopter, huh? 
hey guys, helicopter boys here. He was like, they just, that was it. That was my nickname then for the rest of the week was just like, oh, hey, he's either a helicopter. Oh, what do you need next week? A submarine? Oh, hey guys, submarine. Like it was just, it was the funniest thing. They were just busting my balls, but I, I was just like, oh, I don't know. What are the rules? What are we allowed to? So, uh, but because you're right, like you dream this stuff up, you write it up and someone's going to build it. Like you're gonna make a factory scene or whatever, unless we can go on location and find something that's similar, someone's gotta make that. Someone's gotta stay up all night with wood and sawing and painting and nailing. And it, like, it's insane. We walk in to shoot the next day and I'm like, someone built these amazing sets. It's incredible what they do. Wow. Have you, have you had any situations where you wrote a sketch that you're like, this this is this is gonna kill this is amazing and then it just at the pitch meeting it's oh, like yeah. becomes very apparent this oh work. yeah well we tell people all the time like if you're new to the show like leave your ego at the door like if you yeah. think you, and i mean from like just desk jokes to sketches like you get humbled very very quickly but the great thing about it is you just become fearless because you're like you just don't give a shit anymore because you're like well, don't care. I'm gonna write it up anyway. Throw it out there. See what happens. Sometimes you're pleasantly surprised, but the opposite also happens sometimes. Where you might not necessarily think a sketch is the strongest. You're like, I don't know if this is really good, and for some reason it hits, and the table loves it. So it can work both ways. Excuse me, but yeah, you develop a tough skin because you are measured. Every Wednesday you're measured, and it's like, okay, well, that did not go well. Note to self. Note to self. <laughs> So as a comedian or as a, someone who creates stuff, you have to sometimes keep telling yourself like, hey, don't take it personal. Don't, like, especially when you're new to the show and you're trying to make an impact if you're a writer or, you know, sometimes we have guests come in for the week as cast and stuff. It's to not make it personal because like, there's so much content being made. All the ideas are not gonna make it. They're just not, because there's so right. much volume, right? So it's just about, okay, well, that sketch didn't make it. Doesn't mean it's not a great sketch or it's not a good sketch. It's just that it wasn't chosen this week. And the great advice I got from Mark Critch, one of my castmates and good friend, he, he used to always say to me in the first year, he said, Trani goes, if you had a good week or a bad week, he goes, doesn't matter. You just move on to the next day. Because it's true. If you crushed it and all your shit got in and you feel like you had a great week, great. But next week's a new week. If you had a bad week and you feel like I my stuff didn't get in or I didn't feel like I really crushed anything, it's like, doesn't matter. There's still the next job to do. So you just move on to the next thing. Just move on to the next thing. And did being on the the show, uh, like being a regular cast member, did that help you go from clubs into doing theaters? Well, I'd done that before I stepped into 22. I started doing theaters before I did that. I thought I, I started to use uh, Facebook analytics, like fan page data. And I said like, what are, th this is how I did my first tour. <clears throat> I just did a mini tour, like three shows where I rented theaters. But the reason why I did it was because I was open for Jerry D and we went for supper one night before, before a show, I think in Fort McMurray or something. And uh, we became friends and he was just great, very kind to me and stuff. And we're sitting there having dinner one night and he goes, he goes, you got to find a way to get off the club circuit. And I was like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. He goes, cause he goes, you, you could do venues, bigger venues and stuff. He's like, but you got to find a way to do it. He goes, I don't know how you're going to do it. He goes, for me, I got lucky and I, you know, I got on TV shows or whatever. You start to get some, some FaceTime with people and they start to know who you are. But it was almost like 
when someone who's already done it tells you like, hey, you can do this too, it almost lets you believe that like, okay, I don't, because otherwise I didn't know, well, how do you go about doing that? How would you rent a theater? How would you, who does that? Can anyone do that? Like, I had no idea. I was just playing clubs and taking the money they were giving me, you know, at a club. So once he said that to me, I was like, okay, I'm going to look into doing my own. So to get back to Facebook, I looked at the Facebook data from like, where do I have the most fans and interest? And I picked, one was my hometown, the other one was St. John's, Newfoundland, the other one was Fort McMurray. So I was like, I'm going to go to those three cities and rent venues and do it. And luckily all three of them sold out. So I was like, what? So when I saw that business model, I was like, oh, okay, I'd like to continue to do this. Like you just realize, because you control everything from ticket price to marketing to dates to, you know, who you're working with. Um, so I, I went like, oh, okay, clubs is just one business model and you play a role in that business model or you can set up your own business model. And so I was like, well, I want to try and set up my own business model. Wow, that's amazing. Good for you for, yeah. for doing that. I, well, it's, you know, it's a weird thing and you know this too, like comedians often want other people to, you know, gamble on them like club bookers or festival bookers and really take a chance on them. But what I often say is like, man, you got to take a chance on yourself. Like if you think... You can get asses in seats, then like put your credit card down or your money down, rent a venue, pay for the marketing, pay for your hotels, pay for your travel, all that. And then you'll see, like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, how much do you believe in yourself? And are you willing to risk and invest in yourself? So rather than like, you know, getting drunk four times this week, how about you took some of that money and you put a deposit down on a small venue that seats a hundred people, or you looked into marketing or looked into getting some headshots done or some promo photos for your tour, like just in, treat it like a business and invest back in the business and build your own business model. Like as opposed to complaining about not getting club at that book at that, or not getting booked at that club. It's like, you can do that. I write a Facebook post about it or you can start calling venues and figure out okay well what venues can I play and can I find my own way to market it and do it so I don't know I just I thought I'd just rather do that than being negative and trying to complain about what I'm not getting I'm like well why don't I just go try and invent my own thing you know yeah absolutely and so now uh, like you mentioned the the theater tour that got canceled last year at the start of the pandemic um, is this still something you're doing on your own have you built a team now do you have people that are handling this or is it still uh, all you yeah I had a manager for a bunch of years and then we parted ways late last year so which kind of like you know when you're not touring it's like there's a lot much for them to be doing to be honest so it's like it kind of came at a good time in that regard uh, but now I have like a team for like you know, social media, like cut, cutting video and stuff. I have someone who's <clears throat> a guest coordinator for my podcast. So I have a team, I have someone who's doing my graphics and stuff for like the podcast and stuff. So I have like slowly building a team to do that. Cause it's a lot of hats when you have a podcast, as you know, it's like from doing the interviews themselves to then trying to get clips for promo to then, you know, I was also trying to get the guests as well. So it was like, it's a lot of work on top of that. I was doing 22 on top of that. I was also trying to do stand up. Like it was a lot of hats to wear. And so I felt like I needed to start bringing some people in to just take little things off my plate. So that's been a lot easier for me and a lot better. So I, I feel like I'm in a mode now of trying to write new stand up so that when stages open up again, I can go like, okay, let's start workshopping stuff and have new ideas to go to go work out, you know, to go work out on stage. Well, listen, man, I, uh, I really appreciate you doing this and being here. And uh, this, this has been a, a, a great time for me. And I, I really appreciate your time. If people want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? 
You can find me all over the place. Uh, Trent underscore McClellan. Uh, you can find me on the Instagrams. You can find me on the Twitterverse. You, <laughs> on can, all find of them. Me, you can find me on the everythings. You know what I mean? I'm on the TikTokage. Uh, Trent McClellan5, I think I'm on TikTok. Um, dude, that's another thing too, man. Like just trying to stay on top of social media. I'm like, dear God, how many more platforms are there and how much more content do you need to put out? So that's a that's a full-time job in itself. So yeah, yeah. I'm everywhere. There's stuff. You can find me if you Google Trent McClellan. You'll see it all come up too. And you can go to my webpage, trentscomedy.com. It's got all my handles there too. And, and the podcast is there too. So uh, yeah, man, this is fun. Thanks for having me on. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, man. And uh, all the best and congratulations on all the success. And, uh, uh, you know, just even just chatting with you here, I, I can see why you are uh, as successful as you are. So uh, this has been really good. And I, I think uh, really helpful to people to listen to this and, and hear your story here. So I really appreciate that, man. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And all the best with the podcast. Thank you. Cheers, buddy.